BBC can do Radio One road shows or whatever, where pop stars and people go out and you know, like thousands of pounds are spent on it, and yeah. it's only an hour of broadcasting. You know, these road shows are only broadcast for one hour of radio. Mm-hmm. If they can do that, why can't they set up the stall in Windrush Square with fifteen journalists and? Obviously, you can't speak to everyone in detail, but you can say there's a booth, you've got 15 minutes. You know, as professional journalists, I know within 15 minutes if someone's got a story that's worth pursuing. I, I can I, I can work that out. So, you know, we, we speak to someone for 15 minutes and then say, okay, we'll get in touch with you. We want to learn more. I, I really don't understand what's difficult. And I just don't understand why it doesn't happen because, let's face it, they've got the money. about the media, politics, and the politics of the media. I'm Tom Mills. I'm at TA underscore Mills on Twitter, and I'm joined, as always, by Dan Hind. Hi. Who is at Dan Hind on Twitter. Uh, we're bringing you this week the second part of our interview with filmmaker and journalist Sarah O'Connell. We're going to be picking up on last week. We're going to be talking more about the relationship between the media and the public that it should serve. Uh, and how that divide might be bridged. So we go on to talk about um, Sarah's ideas about possible solutions to this. So on to the second part of the interview. Do you remember the Occupy um, demonstrations outside St Paul's Cathedral? Yeah. So my friends turned up, and this was when the scales fell from her eyes. That was about was that about 2011, 2012? I can't I can't remember when it was. Um, anyway, she'd gone to um, film. At, at the outside St Paul's Cathedral, it makes me laugh even telling you. And uh, so she'd got out of the car with the cameraman and all the kit, and she'd put an umbrella up. It was raining, and obviously this umbrella's emblazoned with BBC News, BBC News. So when she puts the umbrella up, everybody sitting in the tents outside St Paul's started slow hand clapping <laughs> when they see BBC News and booing. My friend told me that she it brought this brought tears to her eyes. Um, because she didn't expect this reception. She expected to turn up at, at, at St Paul's and meet the Occupy demonstrators and to be greeted. Like, hello, the BBC's come, fantastic, they're going to cover our story. So it's that entrenched even then. You know, like, what, what journalists saw at Grenfell was just the progression, I think, of people slow hand-clapping outside the Occupy protest. Of course, the Occupy movement looked at BBC journalists and thought, you're just the establishment, you're the oppressor, you're, you're the person that's party to what's happening to us. But so many BBC journalists didn't see that. Um, and I, I, do, I do think that psychologically there will have been a change in, in, in a lot of the journalists because now they, they've seen the levels of, I mean, it's almost a visceral hatred um, some some people have for us as as journalists, and I do think that that's being acknowledged now, and it's being recognised um, by by us, by the media, and it's it's being recognised. John Snow's speech was uh, all about that. If he hadn't had that experience at Grenfell, where people were screaming abuse at him, he would not have made that speech. Yeah, that, that, that's that, what cut through, wasn't it? You're right. That's what cut through. Through that hurts, and and not only does it hurt you personally and professionally, you know, I'm sure John Snow's a thoroughly decent man and he's tried to be a thoroughly decent journalist. I'm sure, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure that's the case, but 
if you go down somewhere and you're nearly getting lynched, you're nearly getting attacked. Not only is it quite frightening and quite intimidating, it's, it's shocking, isn't it? It's really shocking. And I honestly think that that's, what, that's what's made all of us as, as media think what's going on. Why is there that level of vitriol aimed at us? And I think most of us are intelligent enough and sensible enough to realise that we have to be at fault somewhere. You know, people don't respond to you like that if you've not done anything wrong. And so I do think for the first time, we're all kind of um, examining what, what we do and how we do it. And But I do sort of think it will be a storm in a teacup and everybody will go out and flagellate themselves on the shrine of journalism, you know, for a few weeks and then go back to normal. Well, I, I think the, da- the danger, I think, is you, you, des- you described is that there are significant populations who are experiencing things which aren't being represented in the media, they're not being addressed by the media, and they're becoming increasingly angry about the, you know, the fact that they are effectively invisible. Um, well, they are. I mean, things are being represented, aren't they? But it's the way that they're being represented. It's the agenda and the stories that we pick and choose because um, we've covered benefits, we've covered housing, but we've, we've covered it from an angle of, look at this man... He, he can walk in a straight line and he's, he's on incapacity benefit, isn't he? Um, what a scrounger, what a scumbag. Um, and, and that's been, you know, we've covered stories, but yeah. that's been our agenda. Our agenda's not been fair. I, I think our agenda's been incredibly unfair. Um, and so people don't recognise, you know, they, they, see, they see this on the television news, but they don't recognise it. That's not what their mother's like who's on benefits. She's working two part-time jobs and struggling to stay alive. Um, so it, it's just that disconnect, isn't it, where people watch these images. We cover the stories. Yeah. It's our agenda. It's our agenda. The, the thing with Trump and fake news, it just drives me insane because what what we've done as journalists has allowed him, we, we've given him the bullets. He's just firing the gun. Um, so when he says fake news, um, all we do as journalists is shout back, no, no, our facts are accurate, our facts are correct, we're not, you know, blah, blah, blah. of course our facts are accurate, we have to have accurate facts, but as I'm sure you both know, um, I can find facts for anything, like, we all can, you know, if we want to present something to someone, we can find facts that will back right, up our right. argument. Um, so it's it's not that our stories are factually inaccurate because yeah. they're really not. You know, every single journalist I know, in in BBC, Sky, wherever, they will strive to yeah. make sure that their facts are accurate. Apart from anything else, you'll get sacked yeah. if your facts aren't accurate because you're open to a libel writ. It's not our facts that are wrong. It's our agenda, and it's allowed. It's allowed someone like President Trump to come to power and to pen us all into a room or into the corner of a conference and scream abuse at us. And he wouldn't do that if he couldn't get the crowd behind him equally screaming abuse at us. Um, I mean, it's a frightening, frightening state of affairs, I think, because journalists have never been hated, really. Not not that I'm aware of. Um, you know, like, journalists like me, I don't know, like, I know tabloid journalists have all, always, you know, you just do this and you do that, but mainstream journalists for things like BBC, CNN, Sky, you know, whoever, we've never, ever been hated to, to this level. But we've, like, we've, we've given him the ammunition. This is the way I see it. I just thought, well, we gave him the ammunition, didn't we? And all he's doing is firing the gun because he knows that we're weak and, and he can get us. You know, the only way we can defend ourselves is to say we're factually accurate. 
it's not even the point he's making. That's not that's not why people are cheering him because they think our facts are wrong. They, they know our agendas completely skewed against them, and and it's allowed this to happen. I mean, it's part, part of the perversity of Trump is, of course, that he was given massively disproportionate coverage because he was such he was such entertaining yeah. TV. Um, yeah, yeah. So I they, mean, you know, the media, the particular broadcasters in the states, kind of created him. Um, well, it's the same with Farage, isn't it? And or Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, oh, you're a joke. You're funny and you're hilarious. You're sort of this posh twerp or this super rich billionaire businessman or whatever. It's all a bit of a joke. But yeah. who's laughing now? Suddenly, you know, serious. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, but I, yeah, there is a, this social distance is is very real, I think, and a lot of people would rather just not, not try and bridge that gap. I, I think this. I think this fear. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm not going to name him, but I made a documentary um, some time ago, four or five years ago, where where a young gang member. We were in, interviewing a, a young gang member, and my my colleague. Um, He's also um, an extremely, he's my friend as well, he's not just my colleague, and uh, he's an extremely um, posh man, very, very privileged. Um, you know, I, I laugh at the way he speaks to his face, I hasten to have, not behind his back. Um, he was very concerned about the way this gang member would interact with him, because he because he, spe he speaks so, he's so posh, and he's so privileged, and he's so white, and all of these other things, he's so typical, is what I would say, of a, of a senior BBC producer. But, so he was very nervous, and he was like, oh, God, Sarah, you know, what are they going to do? And, you know, they, they, I hope they don't hate me because I sound like this and all of these things. Well, firstly, I laughed at him because I was like, they think I'm posh. That, like, they don't move in our circles, so they haven't got our finely tuned ears for, are you upper middle class right, or right, middle class? Right. Or, and he was, he was so worried about this. Firstly, they think I'm posh. Secondly, they don't care how you sound. It, you know, no one is more attuned to someone who's being false to them than, than those who are sitting at the bottom of society, who've had their entire lives, they've just been shafted, basically, by all these various professionals. They, they've got great antennae for someone who's trying to stitch them up. It, it doesn't matter if you're posh. It's window dressing to them. They don't even notice. I mm. sound as posh as he does to them. Um, it's window dressing, but what intrigued me about it was that there was a, a, a fear in him yeah. that he would be badly received. Um, and it was a completely misplaced fear, but it was there nonetheless. Um, you know, so I, I'll get people say to me, aren't you scared on council days? Like, you know, I, I get that, or I get, quite often I'll get called brave, or oh, you're so brave. Um, this is by, by your colleagues, though. Your colleagues will say you're, you're yeah, so brave. Yeah. Yeah, though my colleagues will tell me I'm brave because, oh, you know, you go on council estates at 11 o'clock at night and, and you speak to gang members. Um, my, my normal response to that is, when did you last see a middle-aged white female journalist get shot by a gang member? Um, because I don't know if I've missed it, but I haven't seen that ever. Yeah. Um, I've seen lots of 15-year-old young black lads get shot by gang members, um, but, but not people like me. So actually, it's not bravery. Um, but but those those fears are so entrenched in people and so deep in people. And again, it's not a criticism of my colleagues. It's just it's it's a statement of fact. And I can see why they've reached that point because it's us and them, isn't it? They're the baddies, we're the goodies. And and I just think that they've reached that point where they're now frightened. To to and Grenfell won't have helped. I don't think. I think Grenfell will kind of confirm that in the minds of lots of 
privileged journalists in the mainstream that the poor are angry with us and they'll shout at us and I think that'll put people off, not not encourage them. As you say, the, the response is going to be... is likely to be very, very sort of muted. You know, a few, a few newspaper editors will say, oh, I think Snow was being unfair and then... That, that reaction was quite interesting, though, wasn't it, from Mr. Preston? Because he, 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 was, he was clearly upset by the allegation. Yeah, yeah. Like, all be a bunch of privileged idiots sitting in an office. Um, but, obviously, when I read it, it was like, it doth protest too much, doesn't he? Like, if, if, if you're taking that stance, then I, I think that a nerve's been touched. And it doesn't upset or offend me, these arguments, like, are we all posh? There's nothing wrong with being posh. Yeah. You, know, you you can't you can't hate a person for being posh and rich any more than you can hate a person for being poor. Um, neither of those things make sense. So it's what what I'm saying is not an argument against the rich. It's it my my what I'm saying is an argument for representation. It, it's not an argument that says if you're rich you can't be a good journalist because I don't I don't I don't believe that. You know, like one of my friends who sadly died last year, Charlie Courtauld, was one of the most privileged men I'd ever met. You know, like generations of his family went back to Eton, and he, he was completely unafraid. He was the editor of Question Time for quite a long time. He was totally unafraid to challenge authority. Yeah. And sometimes I used to think he was unafraid to do it because he was a member of the ruling elite. And, you know, so you're not as frightened, are you? And you know who you're dealing with. So I, I, it's, it's not an argument against the, the rich, because I, I, I thought kind of Peter Preston was overly upset, um, you know, about, about what John Snow said. It, he, wasn't, he wasn't saying you can't, you know, he's a wealthy, privileged man. It's not about you can't be a good journalist if you're rich. It's about representation, isn't it? And different angles and agendas and ideas coming through. Yeah, and I think the idea that you know, because he said, "Well, you, they, you know, the public don't see an elite; they see professionals who are good at their job." And you're like, "Well, no, I think, what is he talking to?" I think they they see an elite, yeah, because you know, you don't. It's not they don't actually the the, the, the people he names on Channel Four News they're not famous for going out and developing sort of you know long distance stories about about sort of issues of general concern. They kind of swan about and. How is he living in when he thinks that people are perceiving national news journalists as, as uh, uh, you know, these factually accurate, dispassionate um, professionals? Yeah. He, he's living in 1978 or something like that. It, it, and clearly he doesn't speak to people because I get abuse. You know, like I will get abused by people and regularly um, get snapped at or argued with. When I, I, I actually call it the J word, that's what I call it, um, journalism, journalist. It's like the J word, the N word, the, the F word. It's the unspoken word because as soon as I say I'm a journalist, yeah. guaranteed I will get a negative reaction. My job as a journalist is to accept that, deal with it. Um, you know, like that's what I have to do. But now it's part and parcel of. Um, that is, is that is is that's a, that's a change, right? I mean, that, that massive change. Degree of antipathy is new. Yeah. In my career, in in the length of my career, um, it I, you didn't even if they didn't like you and they didn't like what story you were covering, they would have basic respect for the job and respect for your job and what you did. That's long, long gone, long gone. 
I get I, people say to me now, if I say I'm a journalist, they go, Ooh, are you one of them? Right. I don't get a positive reaction. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm talking about um, people who aren't in the upper echelons here. Sure. People are I, don't, I don't get a positive reaction. Yeah. And I think that is, and again, I think the, the reflex of a lot of senior kind of commentators in, in the media is to say, we just report on society, it's not our fault, it's unfair that we're being picked out like this. Because no, I, think well, was, I don't agree with that at all. That I, I think what part Johnson's of what people were saying about Snow, it was like, well, you know, if we had done stories on the cladding, it wouldn't have changed anything. Do you know what I mean? It was like, it's not... Of course it's it's not changed things. It would have massively changed. Yeah. Even just observing things, and I've seen this personally in my own experience, um, even just by somebody in a council or, a, you know, an office somewhere, knowing that this person knows a BBC journalist, that's enough to change things. You don't even have to do a story, write a letter, make a phone call, just knowing... That's, so it, it's it's nonsense. And John, John Snow was right when he said it was an obligation. I think he used the word obligation um, to cover these stories. He's damn right. It's our obligation. It's our duty. That's what we're supposed to be doing, um, covering these stories. So any national news journalist who turned around to me and said, "This is not my problem. Yeah. Um, this is not my issue. I would not have any time for that person whatsoever." Um, it, that, that's all we have to do. That's all we're supposed to do. You know, listen to people, put the stories out there, hold the powerful to account. If we're, if we're not going to do that, who's meant to? Like, I, I understood in a democratic system that was the role of a, the, the free press. Unless I misunderstood something somewhere, that was what we were supposed to do for a living. So people that say it's not our problem, you know what? Get out of journalism. You're in the wrong job. As far as I'm concerned, get out. I don't even want you as my colleague. I mean, if if we if you could sort of wave a wand, how would you open up the institutions more fully to to engage with their publics? I would change the recruitment policy. I would I would have a mentoring course, and I would send journalists out. I would force journalists. If I was the editor of one of the main news programmes at the BBC, I would force journalists to go out and speak to people. And to be fair, when I started, or when I'd been at the BBC a few years, my editor at the time on Panorama was Mike Robinson. Um, I think he might be at the College of um, Journalism at the BBC, but I'm not sure. Anyway, he was my editor at the time, and he used to walk around Panorama offices, and if you were sitting at your desk in Panorama, he would come up to you and say, why are you here? Why are you in this office? What are you doing? And if you were prepared to say, I'm researching on the internet, which no one would ever have said to him, because that was not the answer he was looking for. Right. Uh, this is like a long time ago that I was on Panorama. You know, it's almost 20 years ago. Um, and I think culturally that's changed. I, I, I don't know if that's happening now on Panorama where people are being told, get out of the office, go and speak to people. I would force people to go out of the office and speak to people. And I, I think I said to you before about the idea of roadshows and stuff like that. We need to be accessible. The number of people I meet who say, oh, my God, um, my God, I found a journalist. I didn't know any journalists. Even last month I was stopped in the street. One of my friends right. was introducing me to somebody else and saying, oh, this is Sarah, a journalist. And a young black woman stopped me in the street and said, did I just hear you say that you're a journalist? 
And I was like, yeah, I am. And she was like, oh, God, please talk. And she gave me a detail. She had a case about her children. Um, that's how she met me. Yeah. And I, I was trying to tell her, you know, listen, it's not difficult, really. If you can get a journalist's name, and you can get any journalist's name, that's not hard. On the television news, they say the name. You've got their email address. You know, you first name dot last name at bbc.co.uk. You've got that person's email address. But people don't even understand those those very basic things. And I think we should be accepting that and moving towards them. It's not for them to come to us. It's that's not their job. Yeah. It's our job. It's our job to go to them and speak to them. And it's not happening. And I mean, the, the time for talking stopped, hasn't it? it it's. All those people in that tower might be alive today if we'd done our jobs properly. I truly, truly believe that. If we'd done our jobs properly, then they might not be dead. So, like, we need to do something and we need to be fast in doing it. Sarah, you said that you thought that the uh, that this probably wouldn't change, that what, what's happened with Grenfell and presumably with John So's um, speech might not mm. change anything or probably won't change anything. Well, what do you think could bring about a possibility? the kinds of positive changes, the sort of steps you've been describing? Scrutiny. I think, uh, I mean, the only thing that I think will truly change things is if they're exposed. And so, for example, say one of the main um, programmes with the BBC or Channel 4 or Sky, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm not picking on the BBC particularly. I think they're all as bad as each other. But... I mean, I think the recent gender pay revelations at the BBC have been a prime example of that. You know, as soon as it got down to the nuts and bolts and we actually saw in black and white, this is a man and he's earning £600,000 a year and this is a woman and she's earning £100,000 a year, it crystallised it for all of us, mm. including the people at the BBC. I think that needs to happen with diversity. Um, it needs to happen that we know the editor, the deputy editor, the output editor all the, the junior editors, the senior producers, what colour are these people, what gender are these people, what background um, are they from? Now, I, I know the BBC's counting this, because a couple of years ago when I, they changed the freelance form, and on the freelance form now, I, I've not filled it in for a few years because I've worked for them, but um, they asked if your parents had been to university. That was one of the questions that they asked on the, you know, the form that you can choose to fill in. So I know they're logging this. They're obviously logging um, that's a class question, isn't it? Did your parents go to university? That That's a matter of class. If, if your mother went to university, you're probably middle class. But I, I would be arguing, and, and do argue quite regularly, that this needs to be exposed. We need to see um, in black and white. No longer can we get away with, oh, 25% of our workforce are black. And Yeah, because they're not, they're not senior producers. They're not deputy editors. Um, and I, I think that the only thing that will really, really bring about a change is that kind of scrutiny, because that kind of scrutiny will lead to accountability and they'll have to do something about it. Yeah. And, what, you, you know, one of the things you do notice about the BBC, this is one of the sociologists said in the 1960s, who first studied the BBC, they called it public institution, private world. And he, he noted how resistant the BBC was to any kind of um, public scrutiny. And you could see that over the um, recent pay disclosures was... That, you know, this has obviously been pushed through by the right um, to put the BBC under pressure, but there was, a, you know, there's, there's such resistance to it. Okay. And the BBC, you know, they can always fall back on these 
provides exemptions for freedom of information, for example, which means that they don't have to disclose a lot of the stuff, which actually any other public body would be obliged to. Yeah, yeah. The two agencies I think are the most secretive in British society, the BBC and the Metropolitan Police. And I think they're on a par with each other. Um, I just think the BBC is better at it because it's stuff full of journalists who know how to cover the tracks. Um, and so you're absolutely right, you know, that you can't get information. I mean, you probably could get information on the freedom of um, FOI on, on editors and grades and stuff like that. You, you possibly could. It's, it's possible that you could do that. But, yeah, they're, they're, ab they're reactionary. They don't, nobody wants to be um, accused of privilege and acknowledge that they might be in their position because of privilege. Nobody wants to accept that or acknowledge that. Um, you know, actually, there might have been a black woman down the road who could do this job better, but I got it because I'm a white man. Um, you know, it's expecting a bit much of people to, to, to acknowledge that. That's why I feel like you have to you have to force it. You have to force it out of them. Um, and you have to get these people in the newsrooms. It's not the only problem. Another thing that I think really needs to be rectified, and this ties into the stories like Grenfell, um, and, you know, any story that features the vulnerable or the disadvantaged or the poor, is time. Um, you can, if you're dealing with a group of people, a sector of society that traditionally hate the press, or if not traditionally, more recently, don't trust us and, and don't think that we're on their side and don't think that we'll represent their stories fairly, you need time. And, and time is something that editors will not give you um, because time's money. Mm. And, and so six to eight weeks, I mean, I, I know for a fact if I'd have met the Grenfell residents, because I've pitched stories similar to Grenfell before and had them refused. If I'd met the Grenfell residents, it would have taken me four weeks before I'd even walked into a newsroom with the story, just for me, myself, to verify what was going on. And then it would have taken another three months from that, minimum three mm. months, to get that story on air. No editor is going to spend money on a four-month investigation that they think might come to nothing. And this again ties into what John Snow was saying um, about he didn't say permission to fail. What was his... Um, he used a phrase that made me think of permission to fail... Um, oh, that's right. Space to explore or something? Some, something along those lines and basically saying allow us, allow us as journalists to, to look into these things. But it costs money. It costs money. You have to pay me or somebody else. Um, you know, it, you have to travel around. You have to buy coffees. It costs money. And I, I just think that we've completely lost our way there. I just think we've completely lost our way. And... and we, sec we settled for second-rate stories because of it. We scratched the surface, and, and the viewer can understand that we're scratching the surface. And so the depth isn't there. So we even, I even think we lose the interest of our, of our viewers. And it, it just doesn't, on no level does it work for me. I just don't see how it works. But as sometimes I think what they care about is the minutes. You know, I, I've got 15 minutes to fill on this program. Fill it. Get out there and film something. And I understand that in news, we have to be fast. You know, news is as it's happening. But news happens all the time. We can, we can breathe and have context on stories. We can deepen the understanding of what's going on. People don't understand what's even happening, I don't think. I, the Brexit vote, the referendum, to me, was a prime example of this, where people don't even know what the European Union stands for. And, and what it does, and I, I just think that's an appalling indictment on our, on our journalism when all the hours of television that went into this referendum and television news, and we seem to have not informed anyone. Well, I think, uh, uh, and I think the same, you know, the same goes goes for, as it were, the other end of the scale, 
um, John Snow talks about the utter waywardness of one of the richest councils in Britain, yeah. Kensington and Chelsea. And, yeah. you know, English, English local government is the heart of darkness as far as most people are concerned. You know, yeah. people have no idea what's going on in it. I agree um, with you, but I, I, mean, I mean, this is a whole other level, but I think that we've become worse at our jobs. I really do believe that we've become worse at our jobs. I think we, we don't ask them. I think the way Theresa May behaved in the um, general election was really indicative of, of the time. So she didn't speak to the media, really, did she? She disappeared, she hid herself, she surrounded herself with AIDS. I remember at one press conference she wouldn't take questions unless it went through a, um, one of her aides and journalists. And Michael Quick Crick tweeted that he was shocked that journalists were going along with this and were allowing their questions to be vetted, essentially, mm. before put, were put in front of the Prime Minister. I, I think this is symptomatic of, of us. And um, Going back to what you said about Grenfell and the waywardness of the council, they didn't expect to be challenged. They did not expect any pesky journalist to pitch up mm. and start asking questions. This allows you to relax if you're in a position of power. And I think the way Theresa May behaved in the general election campaign is, is symbolic of this. She thought she could run a general election campaign and not answer questions from the press. Now, something's given her this idea, hasn't it? She's not come from this from nowhere you know, whatever your politics, Theresa May is an intelligent woman. Sure. And she can work out what she wants to do. So at some point, she must have decided, you know what, we can run this campaign and we don't actually have to speak to these journalists. We can get away with that. Now, the only reason she drew that conclusion is because we've led her to that conclusion. We've allowed her to think, we'll let you get away with this. So I don't just think it's um, the utter waywardness of um, Robert Kensington and Chelsea Council. I think that goes right across the country. And I think people in... I think that the people in higher positions of power are slightly more concerned, but people in like middle management, middle professional jobs in, in councils and councillors and managers and housing officers, they feel no fear for, from us because they never come across us. And they don't even, they don't care because they think he's going to turn up with a journalist. No one's going to turn up with a journalist. We haven't seen a journalist for the last 10 years. And I think that's a big problem because it's allowed people to, to relax and, behave with impunity yeah you know the the council in um the grenfell council it behaved with impunity i mean it wasn't just hubris was it it was full-on we can do what the hell we like nobody is going to stop us we we the press are meant to stop that that's meant to be what we do you know we, we don't let it get that far we stop it beforehand because we publicize it and we make people aware of it and we hold people accountable but that never happened well, that's a, that's a good note to, to stop on, I think. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to us this afternoon. Uh, it's been an incredibly valuable insight into uh, how broadcast news works at the moment and, and how it might be made to work better in the future. I would, again, um, urge readers to take a look at Sarah's article on Open Democracy, um, and Sarah, can you tell our listeners where, where where they can find you on social media and that kind of thing? I'm at Sarah C O'Connell on Twitter, and that's really the only social media I use. To be honest, I, I'm on Facebook, but I don't really use it. But I do use Twitter. Brilliant. And the the title of that article again is is the BBC has lost touch. Here's how it can reconnect. 
That's on the Open Democracy website, and it was published uh, on 24th of May, 2016. Sarah, thank you again for joining us, and we uh, look forward to speaking to our listeners again soon.